The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We have to start this week with the shooting at Carolina. Monday around one o'clock, we all got the news that there was a shooter on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill. My wife is a nurse practitioner over the UNC system. She gets these alerts right away. She sent it to me, and of course, we're all worried. She was safe. She's not directly on campus, but learned hours later that one faculty member lost his life. And all apologies if I'm messing up the victim's name, but we think it's important to say his name, Professor Ji Yan, who is a professor in the Applied Physical Sciences Department. Shooter has been apprehended. He's been arraigned. The legal process has started. We don't know about motive at this point, but we do know that it is tragic and it has rocked the UNC Chapel Hill campus as well as North Carolina politics. Our condolences to everyone affected. With that tragic news, we did have some news in the NC poll world for a General Assembly that was not in session this week. We learned over the weekend that Representative Marvin Lucas had a car accident and was in the hospital, but has now recovered and is okay. Representative Lucas is a beloved legislator. He has been in the General Assembly. This is his 12th term. He is a former educator. He's about 81 years old. I looked it up earlier this week and uh, certainly someone that all legislators love and respect. And we're glad to hear that he is back home and recovering from the accident. On Tuesday, it was released that Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls is suing the Judicial Standards Commission. And this is a really interesting story once you dig into it. And it's about her speaking to the media about the lack of diversity on the court. And she's saying that this is a politically motivated investigation. The Judicial Standards Commission is like, hey, this is our job. If somebody turns in a complaint, like we look into it. And so she's suing them saying that it is impeding on her First Amendment rights. And so this body is saying they govern what judges can and cannot say? It's like, you know, for a regular lawyer, you would submit a complaint at the state bar, but the Judicial Standards Commission looks into ethics violations or other violations. So those folks on that commission are appointed by the governor and the General Assembly, and they dig into potential complaints. I see. So as we're recording this, we are all bracing for the impact of the hurricane. Governor Cooper's having a press conference today, Wednesday, at 3.30, and he has already declared a state of emergency. So let's take down the education one, put up (laughs) the hurricane. 
It's Wednesday. A lot of folks are heading for that final destination of the summer, including you and I. You're taking a trip. Uh, that's why we're recording on Wednesday, because tomorrow, maybe you'll be on an airplane. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. <laughs> Scott, Scott might be spending her weekend at Raleigh. I'm heading to the beach. I hope that our house is still standing. I'm sure it will be. Uh, you know, in North Carolina, it's not so much the storm itself. It's not the wind. It's not the rain. It is the creek rises in the days after a hurricane and the flooding begins. I believe that's called storm surge. Storm surge, yeah, for all you technocrats out there. Um, we wish the very best for all North Carolinians uh, during the storm and in the days after. Listen to the media what's being reported, law enforcement, your first responders out there, when they tell you to leave, really take that serious. What was it that Governor McCrory always said, don't put your stupid hat on? (laughs) Yeah, don't put your stupid hat on, and that applies. So lots of 2024 news this week. Yeah, we woke up this morning to an ad by General Assembly Representative Aaron Prey, who says, She's thinking she would like to run for Congress. We don't have any maps yet, but she's in the race. So she is the only Republican in Wake County currently, and she's running for that seat that we assume will be similar to the seat that Wiley Nickel now holds. And her ad, really well done, professionally done, and she is hitting all of the hot-button issues that you need to hit as a Republican, especially if you are bracing for a primary. And I imagine that a lot of these redrawn districts, they tend to attract a lot of candidates. So she's hitting a lot of the bucket issues that the General Assembly took up this past session, particularly on social issues. If you rewind to 2022 in that 14th congressional district that now Representative Jeff Jackson holds, you will recall that there was a veteran that ran against him named Pat Harrigan, and he is running again. You might remember him as the guy that also looks like Jeff Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. He's from Gastonia. Mm Mm-hmm. So he said he's going to put a half a million dollars into his campaign this time. Now, the maps were not in his favor in the 2022 election. I think a lot of us believe that that 14th district is going to be redrawn. And Harrigan is not the only name that is out there as a candidate. More to come. (laughs) More to come. Well done. Yeah, the big question is, does Speaker Tim Moore jump into that race? Many believe he will. Doesn't appear that Speaker Moore is going to have a clean path to the nomination. He is definitely going to have to fight for it. In the 2024 North Carolina governor's race, we had a couple of things happen this week. First, the Democratic Governors Association put out an attack ad on Mark Robinson already. Also known as the DGA, they're a 501c4. They are here to make sure that Democrats are elected across the country for governor. Uh, This is one of many ads that I am sure we'll see, not only on social media, but they're coming to a television set near you. Additionally, this morning, Wednesday morning, Governor Cooper officially endorsed 
Attorney General Josh Stein. This is interesting. Very interesting. Usually the party leaders, and Governor Cooper is the leader of the Democratic Party in the state, stay out of primaries. For him to make this endorsement just days before Supreme Court Justice Mike Morgan steps down from the bench and presumably runs for governor, Governor Cooper is planting his flag with A.G. Stein, and I am sure that this is going to upset many folks in the Democratic Party who are wanting to see a fair fight between Stein and Morgan. We failed to mention a couple of weeks ago, Jordan Roberts, who was the government relations director at John Locke, is now at Blue Cross Blue Shield. So congratulations, Jordan. We have been so excited to sit down with Representative Ken Fontenot ever since he came in and we saw him give his first bill presentation and it was so impassioned. We were like, we've got to get this guy on the podcast. So this week we got to do that. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Ken Fontenot, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Kick us off by telling us about your district. Where is your district? Why is it special? So our district is uh, Wilson, North Carolina, right off the 95 corridor as well as 64 corridor that connects Raleigh and Greenville. And it's an interesting district because it's old tobacco. And politically, it was, you know, the Democratic powerhouse of who's who, James Hunt, is you know one of our residents four-time governor butterfield is, was our congressman fitch was our senate leader for a long time so it's an interesting place because of the lineage but for all the clout that it carries you would never notice that those people live there uh, i mean for all the problems that there are hmm. you know you would wonder with so much political backing why is the community in such disarray and that's one of the things that drew me to the political realm concerning Wilson was that there is a lot that needs to be done. And I think there was this illusion that one day it was going to come because of the people that were in office. But the truth is, it hasn't been delivered. And by the time everybody's left office, Butterfield just retired. Fitch is gone now. It still wasn't delivered. Are you Governor Hunt's representative? I sure am. <laughs> <laughs> Have you met him yet? No, I haven't. I don't know that we ever will, but yeah. Tell us about growing up. You grew up in Louisiana. Tell us about you as a child. So I was born in South Dutch, Chicago. My parents were both migrants from Louisiana to Chicago. In 93, my father passed away. My mom moved back to where she was from, which was interesting because I came from metropolitan Chicago. And then all of a sudden we're thrust into like literally the woods. Hmm. I mean, imagine going to a dirt road, driving for 30 minutes and then opening up to huge pastures of cows, horses, chickens. And I, was, I thought I was lost. I'm like, where did I end up? And then, you know, it was super slow. My elementary school and high school, like it was all one system. K through 12 may have had 200 students. Wow. It was super small, very small town. And the thing I appreciated that we, we didn't have much in technology. Computers wasn't a thing. 
Um, we still had dial phone. We had dial-up internet. It was archaic. But the discipline was astounding. Mm-hmm. And respect for authority and hard work. Those are three values I picked up there that have continued to come with me wherever I've gone in life that I've really appreciated. How long did you live on the south side of Chicago? Until uh, I was about nine years old. Okay. I mean, it's not known for being an easy area <laughs> of Chicago. No, not, not at all. When I was there, we were second only to L.A. in gang violence. Right. You know, most of my childhood friends are dead or in jail. You know, I'm probably different in that my parents took an active role in my life and then my mother took steps to remove me from that environment into a place where I had positive male figures, my uncles in particular, where I was challenged to work and people did expect something from me. And I really carried the same mentality with anybody under my leadership. I imagine that was solidified in your military service as well. Absolutely. Uh, I came from a long family of military veterans. My uncle served in Vietnam, another one served in Beirut. I had brothers-in-laws who did the same thing, cousins, aunts. It's just something we all do. And that's probably what I appreciated about the most was the hard work and the discipline. The ability to show up, get to work, adapt, and overcome. And if I had to say what has led to my political success, it would be that. And you weren't in any branch of military. You were a Marine, or are a Marine. (laughs) I've been corrected many times. You are a Marine. Yes, sir. Uh, you saw combat. It's interesting because my combat experience, as well as my military experience, is how I ended up in politics. Hmm. First four years, I was an enlisted man. I made it to sergeant in two and a half years. And then I got selected for a program called Meritorious Commissioning Program. You were going to OCS. If you could pass, you were given time to earn a degree and then become an officer, Meritorious Commission. When I got that commission, I ended up going to Afghanistan. And an officer is the middle ground between policy and execution. You know, the senior ranking officers are the policy side, junior ranking officers are the execution side. So I'm kind of in the middle. And day one, 2012, on the ground in Afghanistan in June, in the middle of the fighting season, we were delivered some of the most terrible policy I'd ever seen. And as a result, by the time my tour was up, 32 of the people I work with have been killed needlessly. And that's when it hit me that, these policies have impacts. And I thought to myself, I was like, you know what? If they can come up with such terrible policy with whatever education and credentials these people are supposed to have, I can do far better. And that's really kind of how my mind started thinking more about the effect of policy and politics on the everyday person. Had you come to a conclusion as to what your politics were? You were a young man at the time. Had you identified as a Republican yet? So at that time, I I was unaffiliated, although I pretty much caucused with the conservatives and Republicans. And it's interesting because it happened far earlier than that. When you say caucus, you mean your your friend group? Friend groups, voting, causes. In high school, I had this teacher who said, take out a piece of paper. And he said, write your position. And then he did life, government, this, that, the other. I mean, he went down the line of all the hot button issues. And then he said... If you have this score, you are a Republican. If you have this score, you're a Democrat. (laughs) And I'm like, holy smokes. I didn't realize I was a Republican. (laughs) And I actually emailed him. I'm going to speak to his class. He's still teaching later this year. I said, hey, I just want you to know I'm a Republican representative, North Carolina. You showed me that, you know, first part of myself I didn't know was there. And that's kind of how my mind was awakened. And then I just started studying certain causes 
you know, life. I'm like, you know what? Look, I'm sorry. If it's a, a baby after it's born, it's a baby before it's born. I mean, that's relatively simple. And many other issues, you know, the impact of big government on the so-called, you know, low class where, you know, I come from welfare. I get it. And I could tell you that our policies aren't working when we develop dependency rather than independence, you know, give handouts instead of a hand up. We are continuing to decay our society and oppress people when the only choice you're given is be dependent on the government or starve. That's no choice whatsoever. And so those things were all formidable and very formative in my thinking. So what brought you to North Carolina? Was that your military service? It was. I got stationed in uh, Camp Lejeune, Jacksonville, North Carolina in 2010. You liked it and stayed or you met your wife? Could you kind of walk us through that? Absolutely. My wife and I, we met in 2006 in Camp Pendleton, California. We got married less than a year later and we got here and we just loved it. I mean, as compared to everywhere else we've been. California, you know, land of the fruits and nuts, wasn't really interested in that. <laughs> and then D.C., we were there for a while, and that was cool, but it was too fast. And then North Carolina just kind of hit like a nice middle ground for us, and we just loved it. And when I got medically discharged in 2014, I ended up in Wilson, North Carolina, and uh, been there ever since. And your employment is you're a full-time minister right yes yeah so did you start a ministry how did you get into the ministry going from the military to wilson in 2004 i want to say is when i finally understood what it meant to be a christian Mm -hmm. and as a result of that i just felt eternally secure and so then i always wanted to serve in the military and fear of death wasn't a thing anymore it was just more of an accepted reality not that i wanted to die Obviously, nobody does, but you realize it just comes with the territory and that if sovereignty is true, then either I will or won't. And God has a purpose for whatever happens. So I joined the military, which for me was life changing. I met my wife. I got to visit over 40 of the 50 states, several of the different continents, deployed to different different parts of the world. And then while in the military, I just always was involved in ministry in different places, wherever I was at belong to church and my philosophy was simple i'd go to the pastor say hey i'm here what do you need me to do and i got a pretty well-rounded idea of what ministry was through that hands-on experience and so when i got discharged from the marine corps in 2014 a church had reached out to me and said hey you know we're interested in you coming to be our senior pastor what are your thoughts we and we've been there ever since 10 years roughly now tell us about your church so my current church is door of life christian church we started 10 years ago in one of the worst neighborhoods in Wilson. To give you an idea, two weeks into being in ministry, there's a shooting right outside of our church in the evening service in which a seven-year-old was killed. That was my neighborhood. And because of my military experience, it kind of brought me to the forefront. Okay, let's change this. And so I was always on the streets, talking to people, meeting people, making connections, not being intimidated by anyone, gangbangers, drug dealers, whatever, we're going to talk. We're going to make alliances. We're going to try to make positive change. And that's where we've been. Uh, We're just a few blocks away from where we were. We started off with maybe 10 to 15 people. It was a really small church. Now we're averaging the 50s, 60s, something like that. And so it's been really good. We're relatively diverse compared to the area. Wilson tends to be more 
either white or black or Hispanic. We actually are like a cross section of all the above. So we kind of get known as the mixed church (laughs) in my area. (laughs) Interesting enough. Yeah. (laughs) And where does your teaching career come into all of this? When I got out of the military, I did ministry, which you can imagine a ministry with 10 to 15 people doesn't really pay well. (laughs) So I had to get a job and I qualified for troops to teachers. And so I applied and I got hired at Forest Hills Middle School in 2016 or 17, somewhere in there. And I stayed there for about four years before, you know, until the ministry grew to the point where that's all I could, all I had to do. And uh, it was great. It was really, the school was in my church neighborhood. So there was a lot of good crossover there. And that's where I got to see, again, hands-on educational policy, which is of all the things, uh, hills I will die on, and policy world, you'll notice it'll be that one. Usually I'm going to be very vocal about things, especially policies that are ineffective and are not working. I mean, they're just not, and and namely discipline. And that really shaped me because it's interesting. My first year of teaching, I started in January, so I started late, and 46% of my kids passed the end of year test. My second year, I go to my hall supervisor, I said, hey, I got this idea. I'd like to run my class like boot camp. And I I showed her like an opening day boot camp video of how like it's open. I said, I'm going to do that. I said, what do you think? She's like, I think it'd be awesome. (laughs) And I kid you not. Yes, I took control. And in one sense, yes, I put terror in those children's hearts. (laughs) But I will say by the end of the year, 96% of my kids passed. My first eligible year, I was nominated for teacher of the year, and I was one of the most popular teachers in the school. Because I think kids want standards, accountability, and discipline. Even kids who don't seem to want it really want it, I find. Yes. What I like to explain to teachers and administrators is like, for instance, a kid drops out. They don't just stay home. They join the gang. Yeah. And what's interesting is they think gangs are like Lord of the Flies, and they're not. Gangs have standards. They have expectations that must be upheld and above all if you fail at those there are penalties children gravitate toward firm discipline in public schools first because it establishes an environment of safety second it establishes an environment of ability where they know that more is expected of them and they can do it when you allow a child to misbehave you're communicating you can do no better and that's not true you know, my, my famous saying when a kid, because I would, we had Chromebooks, but I never used them. All my work was done by hand. And they were, it was very copy heavy because one thing I learned is that if they copied the work, even passively, they would learn structure, grammar, and all these other things, flow. Hmm. And sometimes the kids would say, Mr. Fontenot, this is so hard. And I would always say the same thing. I said, it is. But guess what? I believe in you. Never got pushback. And I seen kids go from the bottom to the top. I had the largest mentoring group called Gentlemen's Agreement where I developed into an achievement program for minority kids who usually did not have mentorship. And it was not an intervention program like, oh, I'm going to save you. No, it was like, if you want to roll with us, you got to meet these standards. And there are privilege that comes with that. But brother, this is invitation only. And either you make it or you don't. And we had the highest enrollment of all the middle schools and high schools. Because people want a challenge. And when we give them that, we'd be amazed at what happens. So what led you to decide, I want to run for the house? It's funny. (laughs) It was a God moment because 
I'm sitting in my car. I still remember it was Forest Hills Road in Tarboro, Walgreens one side, CVS the other side. <laughs> it's campaign season. And at the time, our representative <laughs> did not even live in our district. And everyone knew it. I just said a prayer. I said, God, you know, I don't know anything about running for office. I'm in a car by myself. And I said, but if you ever open the door and make a way, I don't have the money. I don't have the know-how, but I will do it. I kid you not, a month later, I get a call. I wasn't even part of the Republican Party. And they're like, hey, I just want you to know, I nominated you to be the Republican candidate for House District 24. Expect a call from the chair. So the chair called. I said, okay, let's sit down and talk. And then she, afterward talks, she's like, I think you're it. And then the executive committee came in and said, all right, well, we've never nominated unaffiliated, but I think he's it too. And then we talked to Wiley and he's like, we've never done this in Woodhouse. And he's like, but I think you're it too. And then the last one was, I had a group of, uh, a list of five people, my wife, mother, mother-in-law, and then church members. And I forgot who the other one, my mentor and I said, if any one of the five says, no, I won't do it. And without hesitation, all five were yes. And I was in the game. 2018 yes. was when you first ran. Mm -hmm. And was the incumbent at the time Representative Linda Cooper Suggs? It was her predecessor, Jean Farmer Butterfield. That's right. Yes. Now you came up short by what, 400 votes in yes. that? Yes. Four years later. So by this time, you are a Republican. Yes. Four years later, you run again, or did you run in 2020? No, I ran again four years later. Okay. And you defeated Representative Linda Cooper Suggs by close to 9%. That was a pretty decisive win. Well, you know, I've always had the philosophy of uh, good luck is bred by hard work. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I don't believe leaving anything to chance no matter what. I didn't know numbers. I don't really do the numbers thing. Uh, there's one number I know, and that's a number of hours I invest into something. Okay. So me, my kids, church members, community, we just hit the block door to door. I think we did something like ten to $15,000, and we just stayed in the public. Even when I was not running, I always commented in the Wilson Times on policy and my thoughts on certain things, what things could and could not be when I wasn't in office. I still do that while I'm in office. And I've always been a community leader. So those things just kind of overlapped really nicely to give our campaign a lot of momentum to where I think on election day, I don't think we ever fell behind in the numbers. I think we were always ahead the whole time. It's worth mentioning Representative Farmer Butterfield, African-American, Linda Cooper Suggs, African-American. Sounds like you're representing a district that is also, you tell me, predominantly African-American. It, it is. Yes. That is a hard thing to do with the historical alliance between black voters and the Democratic Party. <laughs> yes. How did you break this? And I also want you to put it in context when you realize that you are a Republican. Being a black man, did that give you pause at all? Because I've heard this from some of my black friends, black legislators say, yeah, I'm, I'm black, so I'm a Democrat. I mean, talk about this. Yeah, so it's interesting because... It has got to be one of the most socially complex issues because what you'll find is African-Americans are, in many regards, super socially conservative. Yeah. They just don't <laughs> vote that way. Fiscally, probably less so, mm -hmm. you know, but they're not really into the whole like welfare system because it's not working and everybody sees that. So what I try to do was be present 
and then show results. So if you go back to 2014, way before I ever got in office, you can type my name in, Wilson Times, you will see so many articles of me being present. First one, we are picking up trash. The second one, I was put after Trayvon Martin, I put together black teens and police. We did that year by year, raise money for black teens from the police to show that these relationships could work. And then outside of that, I was just always active in the community. So I think the edge that I had with, I would say common sense African-American voters who are not diehard Democrats was results. Mm -hmm. I clearly had a track record of results. And so I would say if you were to look at the numbers, you know, I felt we did really good with unaffiliated, obviously did great with the Republicans. We had did great with a lot of white Democrats, you know, because I find in my area, at least they're going to be more bottom line, not so much ideological. So they're willing to give you a shot. And then I had some black uh, Democrat vote, (laughs) not as much as I'd like, but I had some, you know, I feel like it'll be better this time around as especially once the budget is completed, because when you look at the projects we submitted for the budget, the numbers speak for themselves. And I feel like at the very least, that's going to give people pause to say, okay, well, we've been waiting for this from this person and we ain't never seen anything. And now this is coming from here. Let's, let's sit down and chat. Aside from the budget, your policy initiatives that you have really spearheaded have seemed to center around the black community and maybe raising awareness about some issues that folks didn't know about. And you've brought in people from your community. Can you talk about some of those? I find that we need common sense drug policy. And that means if there's something that there's a loophole that people are exploiting, that loophole needs to be closed. For instance, embalming fluid is a huge scourge in low-income African-American neighborhoods in particular. And so we wanted to close that loophole because currently it's not against the law to use it. Sell it. So what will happen is they'll take the stuff, mix PCP and all these other things in it, dip cigarettes, marijuana in it, and it turns people into nightmares. And as a result of that, you'll find that the police altercations go through the roof because a person is so out of their mind they don't even know that they're resisting arrest. So that was one initiative. And the other one was uh, putting more male minority teachers in the classroom. When you look at our educational system, interesting enough, South Carolina figured it out. They developed a program called Call Me Mister, where they realized statistically, the number one indicator of change in the classroom is the number of male minority men. Minority females already present. And then you have Caucasians largely present, some Hispanics, but minority men are For instance, in my school, there were two of us. Hmm. You change that and the whole dynamic changes. So much so, South Carolina has expanded the program, I think, to 21 of their colleges where either they will pay for your education or give you a bonus for going into the classroom. I introduced a study bill so that we can get the ball rolling on that with DPI to get that into the classroom. And so I'd like to look at the big targets. Same thing with battlefield philosophy. If you're in the battlefield, you always take out the biggest threat first then you proceed to smaller threats. And that's what I'm trying to do with some of these issues that focus more on the minority communities. Talk about your relationships inside the General Assembly. And I'm kind of curious about your relationships inside the Republican caucus. It's not a caucus that has had a lot of diversity. This year, it certainly does. There's you, there's Representative Lowry from down in Robeson County. Your presence alone 
has had to make a statement within the caucus. Can you talk about that? I guess the seminal story for that would be I was sitting down with Representative Quick, and he says, I got to ask you a question. I said, what's that? He says, man, how is it being a black Republican? <laughs> I was like, believe it or not. I said, it's awesome, man. Are they, I get treated well. We have great relationships. People respect what I have to say. And it's just really good. It just is. You know, we're founded on ideas. It's like I tell, you know, I was talking to some of the other black Republicans in our area. Because, you know, since I've been in office, we've seen a shift of people registering as black Republicans now. And one of the things we all enjoy is that in the Democratic Party, when you disagree, you are alienated or ousted. There is no room or tolerance for breaking from the party line. It is not that way in a Republican caucus. You can have an opinion on something and you are not alienated, you are not dehumanized, and people may even side with you or change their opinion. So it is very much right now the party of philosophical ideas. And it's very, for me, invigorating. It's like I'm among my people. It's the only way I know how to say it. Yeah. I love being there. I have great relationships with everybody in the caucus. You don't get to know everybody with 72 people, but in general, you get a good feel. And it's just, it's been a really awesome time for myself. You see room for more growth among black Republicans within the House caucus, the Republican caucus, but also in Republican politics in general? Absolutely. So one thing that was encouraging is when I won, I had a lot of people come out of the woodwork and be like, you know what? I think I'm a Republic, registered Republican. They did. Most famously from my area was the director of NAACP had been given a hit piece on me for my stance on CRT. She takes a hit piece and writes null and void, sends it back and says, I'm not sending this and doesn't. And then she contacts me. We sit down. She's like, you know what? I think I'm a registered Republican. And she did. And she resigned from the NAACP. So there you wow. are, our NAACP and Wilson fell apart because of that. And those little things are, I think are shifting momentum. And I think even nationwide is happening. You look at some of the people beginning to align themselves, Ice Cube, and you look at all these other people who are coming out of the woodwork to say, you know what, look, when it comes down to the Democrats, they talk a good game, but they play a terrible one. Finally, I feel like we're having record numbers of African Americans waking up and getting off the Democratic plantation. Hmm. And that's exciting for myself. Sky mentioned it earlier. You, you bring folks from your community to serve as examples for why you need legislation passed. You have a legislative assistant who comes from your community. Glenn Wright is your legislative assistant. And I've gotten to know him, seen some posts he's made on social media. You seem to have had an incredible impact on this man's life. And then you bring him in as your legislative assistant. Can you talk about that relationship and and? What this means, bringing the community to the General Assembly. So I think America, what sets us apart from every other nation, and I've been to Europe, I've been to Asia. Uh, the only continent I probably hadn't hit yet is Africa, South America. But I've been all over the world. I've got to see the inside of how everything works. And I would say what I feel sets the United States apart is we are a country of rights, we are a country of grace, and we are a country of liberty. We are a country of second and third chances. We are a country where so far, other than Rishi Sunak of Britain, that only superpower to produce a minority leader, Barack Obama. Mm. Only one to do that. You know, it's funny, as much people want to throw race around, no one's done that yet. 
Rishi Sunak is the first outside of Barack Obama to actually get that title of being the highest, wanderer of the king, obviously. And so with Glenn and everyone else in my community, it's like, when you look at my campaign, the one thing I try to make obvious is that I am not the hero of the story. I am the guide. The people in my community are the heroes of the story. They're the ones who are going to come up with ideas. They're the ones who are going to carry out these policies. They're going to be the ones who are going to steer us in the right direction when we're on or off. And with Glenn, it's funny, we met on the campaign trail. He was a Democrat at the time. He was working the other side. He had been told to not ever, ever meet with me. And I said, well, what do you got to lose, man? And he, so he sits down with me at McDonald's. I get a coffee. I buy him lunch. And we just start walking and talking. And by the end of it, he's like, man, I want to work for your campaign. I said, dude, I'll hire you in a heartbeat. Because it's funny, as much as Democrats want to talk pro-black, because Glenn was a former gang member, he's not that anymore, because he has a record, they pushed him out of the party. They didn't want him around. Mm. They didn't want the candidate he was working with around. And so everybody they pushed away, I opened my arms. I said, dude, let's win together. Mm. And he... I mean, wow, he tore apart the east side of that town for our campaign, did a phenomenal job. He was my secret weapon at early voting because early voting, you know, two, three weeks, however long it is, he was out there every day, all day, sun up to sundown, saying vote for Ken Fontenot. He just, I mean, is for me the poster child of what I want to accomplish. You know, because if we look at our prison population or even our school dropout population and we just say, okay, we're done that America does not have a future. Unfortunately, we're going to have more people mess up than not. But I think he's a good example of how even when people mess up, we have a country that offers redemption and that they can still succeed wildly successfully. And that's why I continue to, anywhere I go to speak, if I can bring them, I'll bring them. Uh, We did a fatherhood conference and Wilson packed out standing room only. He was a keynote speaker Mm. because I just think we have that country and there's no place like this anywhere. I'm sorry, there's not. We are the only one. And I want to continue to make it that way and keep it that way. Now that you have been on the outside and the inside, if you could change one thing in our politics today, that's policy or just something about our politics, what would it be? I just wish we can become more nuanced with how we do policy. The other one would be expediency. I do think we get a lot of things, a lot of things done very quickly. Uh, I wish there are other things that can be just as quick. Hmm. Um, just because, like a budget. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yes, expediency would be one that I would absolutely positively change because I just feel like, you know, the military taught me very quickly when it comes to the bottom line, and for me it was life or death, and that was a bullet didn't care what you look like, what your name was what your gender was or anything else. Mm. It just cared if you were on target or not. Right. Similarly, I wish sometimes we had that attitude when it comes to expediency on budget or other things that look, there is a bottom line and it is not posturing. Let's get the job done. And so expediency would be one that I would add if I could change anything. Well, representative Ken Fontenot, we appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics, your service in the North Carolina house You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you both for having me. It was wonderful. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. This conversation with Representative Fontenot lived up to my expectations. What a treat it was to have him in the office last week. When you see him present a bill in committee, it is like a hurricane has been dropped into the committee. You can look at the members as they're listening to his presentation. They just seem to be blown away. He is so good at not only bringing the passion, but the imagery that he conjures up, especially around this embalming fluid bill. And again, he keeps it real, bringing folks affected in his district to the General Assembly. Representative Fontenot, thank you for spending time with us at the office and recording this podcast. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Sam Walker Outer Banks. He's at Sam Walker OBX on Twitter, and it says, Hashtag OBX, Motor Lodge always has the best storm marquees. It says, Adelia won't stay. We don't have any affordable housing. <laughs> I hope she doesn't stay. <laughs> you nervous about the storm? You nervous about leaving? No. Yeah. Well, you know, you're always cursed when it comes to airports. You're going to be delayed. Always delayed. Yeah. That's fine. I love walking the airport. I love being at the airport. Even at RDU? RDU is one of the best airports. It is great for getting in and out. I love just how simple it is. Anytime you go to another airport, aren't you kind of like, RDU is better. RDU is better. I have like a certain elitism about it. I like shopping there too. Like just perusing, you know, the different shops, especially the ones that are focused on North Carolina. Root and Branch. Great one. Yeah. All the local boutiques and stuff. So it's like all my favorite little shops in one shop. Yeah. So it was back to school this week. I think I said this last year, back to school time. I love the back to school pictures mm-hmm. on Twitter or X all day. Just people posting their kids. I love that. And some people were posting like throwbacks of themselves as back to school. I wish that were every day on Twitter. Absolutely. Same with Facebook. Any social media platform. We've just been full of these back to school photos. And it's just amazing to see the kids over the years because you know now we've had social media for a good decade and so you can just kind of see their growth it's like this is the generation of the hold the sign yeah I never did that no and it got us thinking about when we were in school and the things we did in school yeah because of some lobbyist at a legislature I mean this lobbyist that we're about to talk about. We don't know who it is. Legend. Legend. (laughs) So I was talking to you about the fifth grade recorder. Yeah. So the fifth grade recorder cost you $35. I think it was like 10 bucks when I was a kid. Yeah, but now it's 35. Okay. 
and every fifth grader gets it and then they play that whatever (laughs) and (laughs) and then we all have to be like oh good job little bobby and it all sounds terrible who pushed for the recorder to be played you know you don't see it at the symphony Mm -hmm. a well-heeled lobbyist and it hasn't been rescinded took this client And this industry said, we have the perfect instrument that every child in America needs to learn to play. And this lobbyist said, I'm going to get it done. And they did. And they did. To this day. Fifth graders filled with slobber all have (laughs) a recorder. Playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you can learn those notes, maybe you move on to another instrument. Does anyone ever go on to just say, no, I'm not going to play the saxophone. I'm sticking with the recorder and I'm going to take it all the way to the top. <laughs> if there, has there ever been a top 40 hit played on the recorder? Highly doubt it. But as we were talking, you told me about some weird test you had to do that <laughs> that might have been a North Carolina thing because I've never heard of it. Yeah, I guess the Scoliosis Society uh, must have had a lobbyist at some point. I guess that lobbyist maybe retired or this got rescinded. But I remember as a kid, they would take all the boys into the gymnasium and we would take our shirts off and we would sit there with our arms crossed because, you know, we didn't want to show our chest. And they would tell us, <laughs> like in this group, I mean, the entire elementary school, all the boys, they'd say, okay, now bend over and hold your ankles. I guess some medical person, maybe a doctor or a nurse, or maybe it was the school nurse, would walk around and they would check our spines. (laughs) (laughs) So problematic in so many ways. It was so problematic. I remember in the fifth grade this happening because you know what, what really seared into my into my brain about this what a lot of butt cracks no like there were some kids in the fifth grade who had a full coat of chest hair (laughs) (laughs) and i remember just like looking at this like what is coming out of your armpits (laughs) and your chest hair and i'm sitting there you know holding my i'm my arms are crossed you know i just assume you're small for your age i was because i you know my birthday's august 8th my mom was like, you're going to kindergarten. So I was always the youngest in my class. Okay. And I remember just thinking like, man, when did you grow, grow chest hair, you know? Mm-hmm. And so not only that, you know, my little body versus these men. who, were, <laughs> <laughs> But also, I also remember that gym being really cold. Oh, no. You're bending over, which is also weird. And, you know, you're just like hoping the nurse moves past you because if she stops and she's like oh look at that spine right there then you know and then there were the kids that like got you need to go to the other room like you're like man he's got scoliosis (laughs) (laughs) scoliosis shaming no No HIPAA laws none of that (laughs) we're gonna we're you know it was just it was terrible I mean that's sort of similar to they used to put just two chairs in our gym and you would go for your head lice check you know (laughs) (laughs) where they had the two uh what are they called uh, popsicles yeah. and they would look through your hair and then send each person out and then 20 minutes later on the intercom it's like (laughs) 
Violet Turner, please come to the office. Everyone knew. Like, she's got it again. <laughs> Violet's got head lice. Joey over there's got scoliosis, you know. And then there is the cream de la cream of public shaming, the presidential physical fitness test. <laughs> that is so embarrassing. You know, not only did you have to do the 40-yard dash, you had to do all that. You had to run a mile. (laughs) Not the 40-yard dash. But you had to do all of that stuff to get this presidential fitness award. And you know what would always get me? Pull-ups. Pull-ups, man. (laughs) You're just sitting there. You're just sitting there like, my arm hurts. And your coach is like, you know, he's wearing those polyester shorts that he hikes up over his belly button. He's got a whistle. He's like, get up there, Lewis. (laughs) And you're just hanging <laughs> and you and you're like you take you take your momentum to get at least one yeah, right yeah and then you come back down you're like i'm not getting back <laughs> well i think for girls then you only have to do like one or two so it's like a big flex if you could do it but what was the point of the one where you just bent forward <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like a flexibility test. I don't know. But our junior high PE coach, Coach Gray, was pretty big on public shaming. (laughs) And and if anybody complained about it, he would say, you want fair? Go to the 4-H center. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. It was so hard. Of course, the kid with chest hair in the fifth grade he's like i'll he's like (laughs) he's like pumping out doing like push-ups on the ground to get ready (laughs) yeah everyone's everyone's counting with him 51 52 53 you know yeah like oh man then little louie gets up there (laughs) just hangs just hangs there (laughs) just put me out of my misery (laughs) let me down now did you guys do swishing no you, so you explained this to me the other day. You're like, and swishing. I'm like, what is that? Swishing. That's when the school nurse brings the cart around to your homeroom or whatever. And she has those little cups. They're paper cups. And she'd fill it up with a little green fluid. And it was fluoride. Okay. And <laughs> for some reason, we would stop instruction. And you would take this little shot of fluoride and you would swish for 60 seconds. And, you know, people are gargling and (laughs) doing all this stuff. And then we would spit it back into that little paper cup, which is just, now that I think about it, what in the world were we doing? And then she would move on to the next classroom. Of course, we're all just sitting there with fluoride now. What is the test? Wasn't a test. Oh. They wanted us to all swish with fluoride. Oh, this just sounds like the Duplin County thing. Like they made, they thought they're not going to the dentist. This is not some lobbyist for the Fluoride Association got a contract. I'm sure with DPI or somebody that you know we're going to do fluoride. We're going to do the scoliosis test, the presidential fitness test. I mean, the fluoride though, like it just, that seems like a nice service they provided to you. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> When's the last time we ever elected a president who could do the presidential fitness test, you think? I don't know. That should be a requirement. Yeah. It you have to be. pass it. <laughs> and we're all going to watch and publicly shame you. I don't think we have a candidate on the stage right now who could pass that presidential fitness test. The last one had to have been either President Obama, 
President George W. Bush. That man was in shape. Ronald Reagan, I bet he could do it. All right, so school has changed. We want to know what's odd out there now. Yeah. What or maybe what did you have to do that was very odd? I learned we did square dancing in sixth grade. I learned that's not a national thing. Yeah, we did square. We do square dancing. We did when I was a kid. We also did uh, archery. Yeah, I did that too. Okay, crazy stuff. You didn't learn pickleball as a kid. No, we did pickleball in high school. I thought pickleball was a new thing. No, it's just been rebranded, and somebody's doing a good job, aren't they? White people in carry seem to love it. <laughs> We've been playing pickleball. I heard that pickleball is for the people in PE class who walked the mile. They can't play tennis, so they play pickleball. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope that y'all stay safe during this hurricane. Enjoy the holiday weekend, and we will be back next week to talk NC Poll with you. Until then, please remember to do politics better.